This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Hi folks, Mark Lautenschlager here in the home studio playing a game of Have Laptop, Will Edit. This is part two of what is itself a two-week podcast arc, a guided tour of Holy Week. If you missed part one, please go listen to that first, as it sets up the entire premise. Part three, or more likely parts three and four, will be recorded for next week. In the meantime, we'll pick back up here where Sam and I were about to discuss a series of parables that Jesus uses to confound the religious leaders accusing him of getting his powers from the dark side, as it were. I'll see you again at the end of this episode. Hope you enjoy it. And so then he jumps into the parables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so one of the other parables that I love is, um, I'll read it. It's a, it's a little long, but it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those that had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So he's, he's talking to the people who are refusing to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, tell those that have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and cattle have been butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And so Jesus is saying, this is what you've done to the prophets before me. You know, Jerusalem kills all the prophets that come with these messages. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And this parable is kind of terrifying because it it brushes up against everything you imagine from Jesus. Here you have Jesus, he's inviting all of Jerusalem, you know, this is the same Jesus who looks at Jerusalem and says, oh man, how I've longed to gather you to myself, but you weren't willing. And so it's like this wedding feast. Everybody's invited, the good, the bad, all you have to do is come. But there's one caveat that this parable throws out. In the ancient world, if you came to a wedding, oftentimes the the king made it such an ordeal that he would buy clothes so that it was a more magnificent wedding and he would dress everybody in regal attire. All of the guests were dressed in regal attire, but this guy comes in and, and he's like, he's wearing the tank top and, you know, beach shorts or something. And the king comes to him and says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? Huh. And he says, uh, he's speechless. And so he's thrown away, he's thrown out. And you think, man, that seemed, that's not like God. That's not like Jesus to throw somebody out because they didn't have the proper attire. 
But what the story is getting at is the best that the Pharisees have to come in, the best that the religious leaders have to come in is not going to be good enough. They need a new covering. They need new clothing that's going to be given by God himself. And if they come in anything lesser than that clothing, they will be thrown out. It's not going to be good enough. And so what is that clothing? Well, it's the righteousness that Jesus is going to give. All throughout the epistles, we find that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have to put, In Ephesians, we talk about how we have to put on the new self, which is the righteousness of Christ. And so that's what this parable is getting at. And so for Jesus to say to these religious leaders, your clothing is not going to be good enough. When everybody in that world looked at them and thought they were the most righteous, the best chance, and Jesus is saying, even you will not be good enough. You need my righteousness that I will give freely to anyone who em- embraces it and puts it on. Even when you, know, when you look at that parable, I, I mean, what it says of that person is that he wasn't wearing wedding clothes, but mm-hmm. it doesn't say that he was dressed poorly. I mean, he was yeah. probably wearing the best stuff that he had. You know, he, yeah. knew, he knew he was being invited to a feast <laughs> a of the point. king, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. So I, I think that this idea that, well, his clothes weren't good enough was like, no, no, no. The clothes weren't the ones that were given by the king. Right. You know, it's like it's, there's nothing there that implies that this person was dressed badly or that they they weren't the right clothes. They weren't the ones that were given to him. And you know, I think that's a that's that's cool. So he tells these these parables. Obviously, it's almost like there. I, I again, I, I picture this as almost being like verbal bullfighting. You know, it's like it's like Jesus, it really is. he puts something out there and he asks them a question or he tells them a story and they come charging forward. And he's like, nope, you're wrong. <laughs> kind of like, so so but, but then like every single group has their opportunity to come and try to pin Jesus down. So, you know, the first one is is the Herodians and they come and say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? They think they're going to trap him. By, because if you say it's right to pay taxes, then all the Jews are mad at you because you're supporting Rome. If you say it's wrong to pay taxes, then all the Herodians can have you arrested and put on trial for subverting Rome. And Jesus looks at a coin and he says, whose image is on it? And they say Caesar's. And he says, give unto Caesar what's Caesar's and unto God's what's God's. And so we've talked about this in a previous episode. If you determine who the coin belongs to by what image it bears, then how do you determine what belongs to God? by what image it bears. And so what bears the image of God? You do. And so he takes the Herodians and totally outwits them and shuts them up and sends them away. And then next comes the Sadducees. And they say, hey, there's a woman who had a husband, but he died, and then another husband, and he died, and another husband, and he died. Who's, who does she belong to at the end? And he gives this, this stunning statement that in, in the new heavens and new earth, women are not given to men in marriage because we are all the bride of Christ, right? Um, and so he sends them away with <laughs> kind of with nowhere to go. Then the Pharisees come and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And he nails down, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is summarized in these. And he sends them away hushed. And then Jesus has one question for them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say, well, okay, let's go back. And they huddle up and they get together and they're like, okay, how are we going to answer him? And they say, well, the Messiah's title was always the son of David. So we're going to go with David. And he says, okay, well, why is it then that when David refers to the Messiah, he calls him my Lord? And they go, oh, 
you know, like the Messiah is not just going to be a man. He's going to be the son of God in addition to the son of David. And so he makes all of them look foolish. Mm. And so now he's really got them wound up. And just when he's made them look foolish, he launches into these series of woes in front of the crowds. Because they're all looking to these guys as though they're the source of salvation. These priests and Pharisees and religious leaders, they're all looking to them like, you know, these are going to be the guys that show me whether or not I'm good enough for heaven. And Jesus just tears them down. Yeah, we have to point out here that when you say he launches into a series of woes, this isn't like modern worship <laughs> choruses. This isn't like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. whoa. No, no. But this is like, woe to you. Woe unto me. Yeah. And it's like it's W-O-E, woe, not W-H-O-A, you know? Yeah, it means danger to you, essentially. Like, you're in for some real trouble on the path you're in. And so he launches out eight accusations. He says, woe to you. You shut the kingdom in men's faces. Woe to you. You devour widows' houses. You exploit the poor, in other words. He, he says, you know, woe to you, you travel the earth to make converts, but you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You care, the fourth woe, woe to you because you care more about the gold of the temple than the one who dwells in the temple. Woe to you, you're, you're all concerned about the matters of the law, you tithe correctly on your, your dill and every other thing that you have, but you neglect entirely justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Woe to you, you clean the outside of the plate and cup so that on the outside everything looks good, but on the inside it's filthy and disgusting. You're like whitewashed tombs, he says, filled with death, meaning their teachings actually bring death, not life. And they pretend to honor the prophets, but they're just like their fathers who murdered the prophets. And so he is laying down these really, really big charges against the people who wielded all the power among the Jews of that day. Hmm. And one of the interesting things, I, I don't, but there's eight woes that he lays down in Matthew 23, even though the ESV rips out verse 14 from the trans. It should be in there. You devour widows' houses. But in these eight woes, they're an absolute inverted reflection of the eight Beatitudes. You know, the, the beatitude is blessed is the, the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first woe is you shut heaven in men's faces. The second beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second woe is you devour widows' houses. You take advantage of those in mourning. You don't comfort them. The third one is, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. You travel the earth to make converts and you make them sons of hell. The fourth one is, you know, hunger, thirst for righteousness, but you're more concerned about the gold of the temple than the righteous one who dwells in the temple. The fifth one is, you know, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And then the fifth woe is, you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The sixth one is, blessed are the pure of heart. Well, the sixth woe is going to be, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside, in the heart, you're disgusting. The seventh one is, the blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, right? And then you get to, you're like whitewashed tombs. It, you're not peacemakers. Your teachings bring death. Inside of you is death. And then the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted, contrasted with the eight, eighth woe is, you pretend to honor the prophets, those who have been persecuted. But you're like your fathers who murdered the, the prophets. You are the persecutors. And so... The eight Beatitudes up against the, the eight woes of Matthew 23, it's masterful teaching. 
And the difference between the two is humility and a submission to embrace the righteousness and gift of Christ versus pride and making the kingdom all about you. Hmm. That's cool. I, yeah, I, 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 I had never noticed that before, that they were the inverse of that. That is really cool. It is something, though, that um, you know, as much as I kind of have sport and make fun of people that like narrative and stories and, and so forth, versus people like myself who would like to have the systematic theology book laid down so we can just be told what to think, um, you know, <laughs> there is a sense in which, though, there's an enormous amount of depth in these things. And you start to, you, you know, you, you look at the interactions that Jesus had with people here at the beginning of this week. And you and you realize that he was saying so much, mm-hmm. you know, in in what was relatively few words. I thought, it, I, you know, I think it's interesting also that um, after he delivers the four or the eight rather woes to the uh, scribes and Pharisees, um, at least as, as it's recorded in Matthew, then he immediately goes into his lament over Jerusalem. Yeah. Just real quick, because I know you're kind of a, you love translation nerds and getting into all the arguments about stuff. Yes. One of the, one of the verses, so like if you're reading the ESV, you'll notice that it skips right from verse 13 to 15 and 14 is gone and they put a little notation there. Right. And it says some early manuscripts have this, some early manuscripts don't, and so they made the decision to pull it. By the fact that the eight Beatitudes match the eight woes so perfectly, you know that verse 14 is authentic. And you should put that back in just based on, you know, on the the parallels that are there. One of these days, we're going to have to do a podcast about Bible translations and manuscripts and so forth. And and then for the for the for a full hour, I can talk about things that nobody outside of me really cares about. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'll be on the back seat deferring. Yeah, that, that's, your that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you say, that's good. You know, it's like <laughs> so. Um, so then Jesus predicts the uh, you know after he gets done delivering the woes and he does this lament of of uh, of over Jerusalem, it's actually a sort of a prediction of mm-hmm. the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Right. So as he's leaving, so remember the first day is kind of prefaced with him cursing the fig tree. Well, on the second day, so Tuesday, he's leaving the city to go back to Bethany. And his disciples are looking over the city going, oh my goodness, look how beautiful and amazing it is. Look at these buildings and da 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 And Jesus <laughs> kind of reigns on their parade and says, it's all coming down. Like there's going to come a day when when an army is going to come and circle the city and they're going to tear it down and burn it down and not one stone will be left on top of another. And he foretells, you know, 40 years from then in 70 AD, the Romans will come and they will destroy the city and they will tear it down to the ground and burn it. Um, and so he foretells that and then he goes up and gives... Um, what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's his sermon on the Mount of Olives where he gives, he tells people the signs of the end of the age. When is, when is all of this going to come about when, when he comes back to reign and glory and, you know, and he's talking about multiple things. One, the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the end, the end of the age when, when he, when he returns, um, it is interesting to me that um, everything that he describes has been pretty much true of every generation since he described them. <laughs> That's why people are always like, this is it. You know, I mean, well, well think about it. He goes, you know, he, he says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Gee, false prophets and false messiahs. Yeah, we've had a lot Check. of those. <laughs> you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. I don't know, which wars would that be? The Napoleonic Wars, the World yeah. Wars, the war- which wars were we talking 
talking about here. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, that never happens. (laughs) And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places all the time. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. You know, it's like when he goes through this whole thing, it's like they'll deliver you to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Well, Christians have been persecuted and hated by a lot of different people throughout time. It says that then they, he says that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. False prophets will arise. All of these things, as he's describing them, I went to a, I went to a pretty constant. They're pretty constant. Yeah, so that's what we're getting at here. But I, I mean, I went to a, a, a Bible college where they were really caught up in this whole thing of trying to predict exactly when there was going to be, when Christ was going to return. And they, it just became this all-consuming thing. I mean, they had classes, like a whole class that they taught on understanding this, understanding eschatology and this prophetic stuff. And, mm-hmm. and as they would go through that, they would be teaching very confidently about this means this, and this means that, and this means the other thing. And I'm sitting back there saying, or, <laughs> or it could mean all these things over here just as easily. And I do think that it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, by saying that he's giving a sermon about the ends of the age, you know, it's not going to be something where you're going to be able to sit down and go, okay, this is it. Man, this is it. 2020, the coronavirus, that's the end. You know, that's yeah. the end of the of, of the world and that kind of thing. Yeah, we've had a lot of pandemics way worse than this one. Yes, and we've had a lot of and, – and the things that he has predicted in this, in this sermon are things that we've had yeah. with us pretty much all the time. You know, one of the ways that, that I've heard this explained, and I think, okay, maybe, maybe that could be it, is um, – you know, when it says, you know, here you have all of these different things going on. And verse 80 says, all of these are the beginning of the birth pains. And I've heard it described like, that's not, you know, that's not the delivery. But if you, you know, if you've been in a room with somebody who's giving birth, there's that little machine that kind of measures the contractions. And you watch it, and what happens with birth pains is you get a minor contraction followed by a long period between them. And then you get, you know, a little bit greater contraction followed by a shorter period of time. And as time goes, the contractions get closer together and the severity of them gets more and more intense. And so when Jesus says these are the beginning of the birth pains, he's saying these things, you know, when you see them, that doesn't mean I'm coming right then. But when they start getting closer and closer together and more and more and more severe is kind of the idea. Like you could be in labor for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, but it's when you get, you know, two minutes apart, one minute apart, 30 seconds apart, whatever it is, I forget. And, you know, the, the contractions are off the chart and they're severely painful. And that's when the baby's coming. Yeah. Although we do have to say that he concluded this with the, but concerning that day and hour, no one yeah. knows, even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only, and then he he like he harkens it back or likens it back to uh, Noah and how people were really surprised yeah. when it started to rain. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Noah got in the ark and they were unaware until the flood came. And you know, I think the whole thing is it, again. I'm I'm actually looking at Matthew chapter 24 because he gets to the end of uh, you know toward the end of it, and at verse 42 he says, therefore. And, of course, like we've already said, anytime there's a word therefore, you have to look back and see what the therefore is there for. So, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And I think that one of the reasons that he describes it to us 
in this way and with all of these things that are such common things is he's saying, I want you to be prepared every day. That's right. Be ready at all times. Don't let this take you by surprise. Be ready for, and he tells, there's parables that he tells to that respect, the parables of the 10 virgins. You know, he's, he's telling them, I'm going away, but be ready for my return. Don't let Mm -hmm. it take you by surprise. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And one of, one of the things I love, this gets back to narrative with kind of the beautiful symbolism that's going on when in verse 37. So here you have Jesus preaching the sermon about the end of the, the end of the age when the final judgment's coming when he returns. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. And I love the symbolism. And maybe this is accidental. Maybe I'm not supposed to see this, but it's just kind of beautiful imagery. When Noah faced a worldwide judgment, how did God let Noah that it, know that it was over? So Noah sends out these signs, right? He sends out the ravens, and then he sends out the dove, and he knows that the judgment is over when the dove comes back to, with an olive branch in his mouth. And I love that Jesus is here talking about you know the, the coming judgment, and he's the salvation of the world, and he's in the midst of olive trees everywhere. <laughs> it's just like... That's God's olive branch. Olive branch is always the symbol of peace. And here's Jesus, you know, talking about the final judgment in the midst of the emblems of peace all around him. Yeah. So we this this concludes Tuesday. It was a busy day. <laughs> it was a busy day that week. Um, and then Wednesday is what uh, you told me that I didn't even know this. You said it was it's known as Silent Wednesday. Yeah, so most often Wednesday, you know, you never you never see a celebration for Wednesday because he's not he's not enraging anybody. Well, we don't uh, see Monday and Tuesday either, and those were busy days. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you know, but he it's it's real. So Monday and Tuesday, he's got the religious establishment in a fury. It's it's like I've read somewhere, you know, at Passover, Jerusalem is already a hornet's nest to start with. And Jesus just went into Jerusalem and whacked it, you know. With <laughs> and so now they're they're looking, they're they're desperate to figure out a way to get him put to death. But they have a problem. You still have a a large contingent of people. You you know the the low, the left out, the you know the the people that are have been shown dignity, who have hope and grace and mercy, and you know they love Jesus. You've got the self-righteous over here, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, everybody, they all want to kill him. And so they start scheming. And they openly talk about it. In the Gospels, they openly talk about this, that they need to find a time when nobody's going to be around where they can arrest him, put him on trial, and get him dead in a hurry so that it won't create a riot. So Jesus still has, you know, we think of, you know, the whole city turned against him. A significant part of the city turned against him. But he still has people that they're fearful will riot if they see them arrest him and put him on trial. And so on Thursday, when, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday, Judas is going to agree to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And they're like, on on the Passover celebration, when everybody's eating the Passover meal, perfect. And their idea is, it's like Christmas. You know, Christmas, the roads are empty. Everybody's having dinner with their families. All the stores are closed. You know, it, every life just shuts down. And so as they're scheming, they're thinking, perfect. If we could get him on Thursday night, perfect. Nobody will be around. Mm. And so that's kind of the idea. And so on Wednesday, Jesus takes it easy, and you have this really beautiful story where he's reclining at a table 
with his apostles, and Mary of Bethany comes along, who had been shown great, great mercy and redemption. This is the one, you know, who who fell at Jesus' feet repeatedly. If you, if you ever follow the stories of Mary of Bethany, she's always at his feet. Um, and, he, you know, when, when he was teaching and Martha's in the kitchen and she's cooking up a storm and she's getting angry because Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Jesus says what? She has chosen the better thing. Or when Lazarus is dead, you know, Martha expresses disappointment to Jesus. But what does Mary do? She falls at his feet weeping. And then here, Jesus is preparing for burial. And where's Mary again? She's at his feet again. And she's anointed. She breaks open this, this jar of perfume that we're told is worth a year's worth of income. So she busts this alabaster jar open and she begins to cover Jesus's whole body with it. And the idea is she, she of all the people that, that he's been teaching, she gets it. He is going to die. Everybody else is resisting this truth. None of the apostles are getting it. They're, they're kind of like refused to believe Jesus when he says that he's going to have to be put to death and raised from the dead. But Mary of Bethany begins to anoint his feet with this perfume, his body, his head. And what are the apostles doing? They're angry. Oh my goodness. We, you know, particularly Judas. Judas is going, we, uh, who, why are you letting this woman do this to you? We could have sold this perfume and given it to the poor, not meaning that at all. He was totally just interested in stealing. Um, but here you have Jesus who says of Mary of Bethany, which I just think this is awesome. He says, you know, what she has done is beautiful. You know, she's come to me before my death. She's honoring me for the sacrifice that I'm, a, I'm about to give. You know, the poor you're always going to have with you. But she has come to me to express this love. And wherever, and then he says this stunning thing. Where, and he says, wherever my gospel is preached, I want her actions that she's just done for me mentioned. Which is kind of a stunning thing. You think, well, gee, you know, her, her story has nothing to do with the gospel. Why in the world do we need to tack on, oh, hey, Jesus died for your sins. By the way, some lady poured perfume on him, you know? <laughs> yeah. But you know what Jesus is doing there? Is he's saying, when my glory goes forward to the ends of the earth, when my salvation and my glory goes forward to the ends of the earth, I want to share it with her, with the least, the lost, the left out, the ones that are at my feet. I want her to be glorified with me. So wherever you mention me, I want you to mention her. And it just reveals the character of Jesus here. It's so radically generous and kind to the lowest. You know, he he should never have been one-on-one -on -one with a woman like this, particularly in Jewish culture of the day. You didn't give the time of day to women. And yet he pours into all these women. He honors her. He doesn't say, wherever my gospel is preached, I want Peter's faithfulness to be mentioned. You know, he lifts her up. And says, you guys are, are giving her a hard time. How about this? You know, you want to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How about this? I want her mentioned. And he lifts her up. And that's just a beautiful thing that when we come in submission, when we come to just love the Lord, he, his desire is to share his glory with us. I love that. It's a beautiful picture of his heart. It is. So after this moment when Mary anoints Jesus' feet and head and the disciples react uh, to that as being wasteful, it says that, uh, that Jesus, Judas in particular became angry, and you noted that that's because he was stealing from, I, I forget where that's recorded, but it actually is. It's that he in was, the Gospels. Yeah. It's in the Gospels that he was stealing from their purse, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. 
but I, I've I've heard some people talking about the story of Judas that have said that um, that it was at that moment that he make the decision that he was going to betray Jesus, that he went from there to the chief priests at that point. said, listen, I'll help you catch this guy. Um, Is it, do you think it was a spur of the moment kind of thing with him? Or do you think this was something that was it really that he just became indignant over the money or was he always looking to stab Jesus in the back? You know, Judas is such a complex character because was he he, ever a true disciple is what I'm getting at. I I don't think he can be because Jesus, when, when Jesus refers to him and he talks about, you know, somebody at the at the Last Supper, he says, somebody's going to betray me. The language that he uses is it would have been better for that person had they not been born. Um, so he very clearly is speaking condemnation, which means that Judas was never a true disciple. Right. He is always looking out for what's best for him. Um, and he never understands grace. So it's like, you know, after after Judas betrays Jesus, Peter is going to betray Jesus, and both of them have to deal with betrayals. Peter understands the gospel. He understands forgiveness. He understands the redemption that Christ is offering, whereas Judas just despairs and hangs himself. It's, and it, show, it shows that there he missed the understanding um, of what grace means. I just wonder, and don't, I, maybe maybe this is just me, I don't know, but I've always wondered how it was that somebody could be that close to Jesus because the disciples were with him when he did all his miracles. They had all these conversations with him. And I'm thinking, if look, if I was that close to Jesus in the flesh, how could I see that and not believe this was the Messiah? You know, how could I not believe? How is it possible I, that Judas could be that close to him and that he wouldn't be a believer? Judas absolutely mentally upstairs knew that Jesus was the Messiah. No question about that. Like, I mean, there, that's the reason why he tries to give the money back and then goes and kills himself. He knew in his head that he was doing wrong, but he was willing to sell out God for personal advantage. Um and, I, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of us do that. You know, we, we don't may, might not verbalize it in those ways, but there's a lot of ways where it's like, yes, I absolutely know that Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my creator. He's the one who has a right to demand everything from me. And in my daily life, I withhold and do the wrong thing anyway. Hmm. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that my, my mind isn't assenting to the fact that he is who he is. But it's my heart is just stubbornly opposed to him. Right. And so where, where we find Judas not being in saving faith camp is that he does not come back. Mm. He, he is in his heart, his mind knows who Jesus is. His heart refuses to surrender. I think that's why we have the story of Peter almost to, to uh, offer those of us some comfort. <laughs> it's yeah, like, you yeah. know. It's like yeah, he think, stepped in it really bad. <laughs> stepped in it really bad, and that, and yet was restored from that. You know, totally. so there's. It's like Peter's there to. I've and I have said this in the past, by the way. I've said that Peter is there for for most of us to be able to feel okay about ourselves. It's like, <laughs> why was Peter there? Peter was there because he was going to do all the things, do and say all the kinds yeah. of things that we would do and say if we yep. were there. Yep, foot and mouth disease. Is, yes, is, that's Peter's. So deal. Peter's there to make us feel good about that. So uh, it says that <laughs> it said that Judas then betrayed him for thirty pieces of silver. Is that significant? Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons why that's significant. One of them goes back to the prophet Zechariah, 
And there's a passage in the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 11 where God is talking about how his people, now this is hundreds of years before Jesus, and he's saying, my people have betrayed me. And so he says, if, if you think it best, give me my pay. This is God talking. And so what do they do? They paid me, this is directly from Zechariah eleven twelve. It says, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Now that's predicting what Judas is going to do. And that 30 shekels of silver was pretty um, significant. So like if you injured a slave, the penalty was 30 shekels of silver. So that when, when the chief priest offered to pay 30 shekels of silver in that, they're hiding what they intend to be an insult, right? So if you injured a slave, the penalty in Exodus 21 is 30 shekels of silver. If you um, to dedicate a woman's life to the Lord, you offered up 30 shekels of silver. And so by comparing Jesus to a slave or a woman, the, the chief priests who are paying Judas are intending to say he's no better than a slave or a woman. And so, and ironically, you know, Jesus would have been absolutely thrilled to take that relation um, and to say absolutely. Um, but they're intending it as an insult. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's They're it. just punks. <laughs> <laughs> the religious leaders of Jesus' day, punks. That's a, uh, they are punks. So then we have the at you know we have all of this take place, and then Jesus has the Passover supper with the disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you imagine? Well, well, first of all, what what happened there? This we talk about you know Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. Where was the upper room? What was what was that about? So that's going to be in the city of Jerusalem, and he sends Peter and John to go and secure this room so they can have some privacy in Jerusalem where they could have a meal with kind of intimacy by themselves. Because most of the people at Passover, Jerusalem swelled to like four or five times its normal size. People are camping all over the hillsides. They're camping in in neighboring towns. Tremendous population. And so to be able to secure a room in the city where you can have you know, intimacy and privacy indoors would have been hard to do. But so they secure this room and they have this meal together to celebrate the Passover feast. And this goes back all the way to, to Moses when God is going to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. He, he, that's when they first have the Passover meal. And back then when Moses is given the command, they basically have three parts of the meal that are really important. The one they have a lamb that they slaughter and they, you know, they put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of the house. So one part of that meal in the book of Exodus is roasted lamb. Then they were to clean out their houses of leaven, which were it's yeast essentially. And they, this unleavened bread was symbolic of pure bread. So if leaven represented sin, unleavened bread represented purity. And then they also had dipped, you know, bowls filled with bitter herbs and the bitter herbs were to remind them of the 400 years of slavery that they had suffered. And so these are the dishes that are brought forward at the Passover, and then they also would drink wine, and every different cup of wine had a particular symbolism. And so this is a very formal meal that dates back and is rooted in tradition 1,500 years before Jesus and his disciples sit down. And so before they even start that meal, Jesus is going to do something that's radically um, would have been stunning. One of the things I've, I've, and this is my idle curiosity, 
it, uh-huh. you know, it says that, uh, that, the, that the disciples came to Jesus and they said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus said to them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher needs the room, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I can imagine them walking around Jerusalem going, a certain man. I'm just, <laughs> well, okay. So I, here's my question because, and this is, again, when I ask this question, you're going to be like, really? This is the kind of stuff you think about? But I'm like, the name isn't given, okay? Uh-huh. And yet the name had to be given or else, like you say, John and Peter would have been rocking around Jerusalem going, which man looks certain to you? <laughs> so I'm just curious. I'm thinking, why was the name withheld? Or Yeah, he it- does the same thing when he gets the donkey, when he sends them into Bethpage. He says, you know, go and a certain man, I think it's a certain man, will, and he'll give you this donkey when you ask. And you're like, huh. How do, they, how do they know, like, they go in and look around and there's a whole bunch of donkeys there? <laughs> I guess you just start asking people, and the guy that gives you the donkey, you're like, okay, you were the certain man. I got it. Like, you kind of wonder if they're knocking on doors going, do you know who yeah. the teacher is and why he'd want to? But also, by the fact that he says the teacher, then it's, it's obviously going to be one of his followers or disciples. Right. I mean, it's yeah. obviously. So I think they probably had a pretty good idea. But it's just interesting to me that the identities, it's its like, it's one of those things where I, I, I would put a little footnote in here that says, name withheld to protect the innocent. You know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing is like, we didn't but there's write lots his, of There's lots of times in the scriptures where it's very deliberately leaving somebody unnamed or naming somebody for a particular reason. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it might be, you know, a lot of times when it leaves somebody anonymous, it's so that you can insert your role in that or you know, you can relate to them um, like the the woman caught in adultery. We don't we don't know who that was, and I right. think part of the reason why she's not named Jesus knew her name certainly, uh, but one of the reasons why she's not named is it allows all of us to relate. You know, all of us serve, all of us are willing to give up to to push the mission of the gospel. Now I'm winging that. I have no idea if that's why. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it is. it is interesting. It, well, when I say name withheld to protect the innocent, I'm also thinking about the fact that these gospel accounts were written um, of describing a time that was, I mean, there was a lot of controversial things going on, obviously. They were, you know, they, they, they didn't know that they were going to be this force that changed the world. You know, understanding that they were, in a lot of cases, they were afraid, you know, because after the crucifixion, you find them basically hiding out you yeah. know they they figured they were going to have to go underground and so i think some of these gospel accounts and and sometimes things were obscured and just being a pragmatist here they were thinking okay we got to protect this guy if we put his name in there you know it's like there's going to be somebody that's going to come around and 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 hassle him later huh. on so i think that's interesting i never thought about that that I, might be it yeah I mean, they, they definitely do kind of go underground after mm-hmm. the crucifixion. You know, we, we sure. know that. So um, there's, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it's These are these speculative things where I, you know, obviously I'm not going to be able to teach a class on that, but it is an interesting <laughs> thing to think about, you know. So when they gather in the upper room and the Passover uh, feast, I, I think the thing that always I mean, there's oh, there's so many significant things here, but one of the things that occurs to me first off, because it's sort of a feature of of our own Maundy Thursday services now, although not this year because we're going to be socially distant from one another. But Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, mm-hmm. and and this would have been stunning. And and so to enter into that culture, the task of foot washing was typically reserved. Again, now this is interesting for slaves and women. 
And so remember, the, the religious leaders had sold him for 30 pieces of silver, right? And insinuating that's who he is, a slaver, uh, likened to a slaver woman. And now he's doing the task that typically was reserved for the lowest of slaves and for women. And so he's, he's identifying with the people who were treated on the bottom rung of society at that time. And he, he disrobes, he's in his undergarments, and he takes a towel and a bowl, he goes to Peter and he says, hey, Peter's like, absolutely not, you know, I won't let you do this to me, you'll never wash my feet, and Jesus responds, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. <laughs> and then Peter says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And so here, Jesus is going to reduce himself to the role of a servant to cleanse his followers. And now he's physically cleansing them, but it's a symbol of what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to go even further. He's going to have to be even more humiliated to cleanse them. Um, And that's what he does. And he even does this. One of the most stunning things is he doesn't just do this for the faithful ones. He's knowing that Judas is going to betray him. He's going to wash Judas's feet um, and show kindness to him. It's, it's remarkably, um, you know, you remember when John the Baptist is first called, um, when Jesus comes to him, John the Baptist's response is, you know, I'm not worthy to even unstrap the sandals on his feet. He's, you know, that's like the lowest of servants. And John the Baptist says, I can't do that. Well, now Jesus is going even a step lower to show that he has come even as God, even as the Messianic king coming on a donkey, right? He's humbling himself to say, I am the lowest servant, even as God, to lift up my people. The humility of God is amazing. And I think that anybody that's attended a, a modern-day you know, foot-washing thing are used to people that take off their nice clean socks and have nice clean feet <laughs> and you know and and the the thing about the i'm not fit to unlace his sandals um you know first of all you got around by foot everywhere back in the first century and they were you know i mean the sandals were not flip-flops but your feet were dirty i mean this yeah. was a it was a there was a reason why they washed people's feet when they would enter the house it's because they were a pretty clean and fastidious people and therefore the feet needed to be clean when you came inside yeah. and i'm imagining that they probably had a slave who was responsible for removing the sandals getting them out of the way and then another guy that would come up and actually wash the feet and if you were good you got promoted from foot washing slave to sandal removing slave there was probably some hierarchy here it's like yeah i used to wash the feet but now i'm on sandal duty and if you work hard and wash well someday you're going to be on sandal duty too you know that kind of thing well, it's just, you know, these mental pictures that I have of the of the culture back then. But, uh, you know, but it kind of goes we, to what we you need were, a Mark translation of the Bible. With no, all we your don't. Rabbit trails. No, we don't. We do <laughs> not need a Mark paraphrase. translation. Yeah, paraphrase. paraphrase. Yeah. They, they, they the, you know, you have the message, which is kind of a paraphrase, you know, just kind of take off with a sermon. I'm going to call writing mine, home. Hey, mom, guess what? I got promoted. I'm going to call <laughs> mine the massage. <laughs> you, you have the message i'm going to write the massage nice. so yeah someday so uh, but in that jesus one of the things that he does so he's foot washing which stuns everybody right because it's such a lowly task but he says do you understand what i've done for you you call me teacher and lord and rightly so that's what i am now that i your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet and what he's saying is if there's nothing that's beneath me and the way that I come and serve and love my brothers, 
There's nothing beneath you. There's no task too lowly in loving your brothers and sisters. There's no task that's beneath you. Go serve like I've just served you. Wow. And so it's not just that he does it, but he's, he comes and says, if I'm willing to do it, then you have no excuse. Nothing's beneath you. Can you imagine how it would change the church if, <laughs> if every believer, everybody who attends a church in this country understood the message, the meaning of the foot washing and took that to heart, how it would change the church and, and change the world? Because when they saw how we were you know, washing each other's feet. And, and the, like you say, he washed Jesus' feet. So yeah. this is something that's, that's not just to be reserved for the faithful, but also the faithless, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. You know, and it's in John 13, one of the things that he says, and it's, it's kind of a heightening of the love commandment. Remember, you know, the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And John 13, right in the middle of this foot-washing pericope, Jesus is going to say, you know, that we're not just to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He says, now love each other as I have loved you. Mm-hmm. Now that takes it to a whole new level because how has Jesus loved us? Not just as, you know, he loves himself. He's loved us sacrificially to great cost, to humiliation. And what he's saying is, okay, I want you to up your game and love people as I have loved you. Now, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's an incredible calling and a big ask. Because there's no price that Jesus is not willing to pay and love for his people. Before we uh, talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the, the, you know, because that's, that's profound. I mean, it's amazingly yeah. profound. But again, this is one of those things that probably only occurs to Mark. But I think this is significant because um, it, I'm reading from Matthew 26 here. It says, uh, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he, Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they, this means the twelve, like all of them, were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And I thought, Wow. Those every one of those guys thought, maybe it's me. <laughs> Uh, that is, I think that's wisdom. That's honestly. that is profound, isn't it? You know, it's like these are the guys that have been following him around, and they were this. He would, they were his friends. I mean, he, he they were his friends. They were his closest companions, and yet they looked at that and thought, "Oh, maybe it's me." <laughs> I tell you, it's a, I, and I think there's like like I said, I think there's wisdom in that. You know, there's there is inside of us such a weakness that apart from his sustaining grace, we're capable of anything. Um, and so when you hear that, you know, I, I, right now as I'm talking into this microphone, I can never imagine anything getting me to, to, to just openly, defiantly rebel and betray Jesus to such an extent that Judas did. But I have to recognize that apart from his sustaining grace, Anything is possible in me. I look at some of these, some of these worship leaders um, that that I love that suddenly you know denounce their faith and walk away from it. And I think, how in the world is that possible? Like, you know, these guys sang their hearts out. They wrote these beautiful lyrics. They they followed after Jesus with their whole heart, gave their life to ministry, and then all of a sudden, just boom, walk away. And and I look at that, and part of the reason why it grieves me so much is I, I can't imagine that being possible, um, but it's frightening uh, in some sense. Like, I can't imagine that ever being me. 
but I need to lean even more on the Lord because I know apart from him, it could absolutely be me. Mm. Hmm. So then he institutes the Lord's Supper, which, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, at the time it was just supper. Uh, you know, now it's now it's the Lord's <laughs> Supper, but at the time it was just Jesus with with supper, Passover uh, feast, yeah. Passover feast. He said that he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "Take, eat. This is my body." And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I I have to imagine that they just sat there with their jaws opened when he said that mm-hmm. it must have been no doubt I, we i mean we have communion in church and we 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 understand that that the lord's supper is a sacrament and it's to be taken seriously paul you know writes to uh a church to the corinthian church talking about groups of them that were basically having a big party uh at the lord's supper and talking about how they were drinking judgment to themselves they were eating and drinking judgment to themselves because they were approaching it with a yeah. without the frivolous. right frivolous frivolously right that's the word i was looking for they were being frivolous and so we understand all that but still now again this is me projecting myself back into that room you know jesus just got done talking about the betrayal and they're all worried maybe it's us because they understand the, the that they have that capacity right that's wisdom right and then jesus turns to them and says this bread is my body which is given Man. for you. And this blood, this cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's just that has to be like, wait, wait, we're going to betray him. One of us is going to betray him. And yet he's talking about literally giving his body, giving his blood for us. It's, so when Jesus and, and I don't know, it, it's probably wrong to say reinterprets, but all of the elements of the Passover feast had come with very real symbolism. Um, you know, that, that were hitched to the Passover uh, in the days of Moses. And so Jesus is saying, you know, that all of those were prophetically pointing to me. So, you know, like the, the unleavened bread was, was symbolic of purity. Without the leaven, it was a symbol of holiness, not being defiled. And so here, imagine this, you know, you have Jesus holding it up saying, this is my body. I am the one who's pure. I am the one who's without stain i'm without corruption and i'm going to be broken for you mm-hmm. you know the the bowl of bitter herbs right you know that was that was the symbol of suffering and what does he do what does he say he says the one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me is going to betray me and so you imagine you know here's jesus and his sinless body this bread is being plunged down into the bitter herbs the suffering Sharing the hand of Judas in that bowl, which I don't think people were looking at that when he said it. Otherwise, they would have known it was Judas. But it had earlier happened. Judas is sitting next to him, and he plunges this bread down into the bitter herbs, symbolic of what's going to happen to his body. It's going to be broken and plunged into the suffering. Um, but the wine now is is not. It's blood. It's the blood of of that's going to be shed from him that's going to institute this new covenant. And when you're talking about Passover, this is when Israel is coming out. They're on their way to Sinai. They're about to get this new covenant with God, the covenant of the law. And Jesus is saying, look, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So at Sinai, you know, you get the law, which creates, you know, a whole bunch of sin, a whole bunch of laws for us to break. 
And here Jesus comes and says, now here's a new covenant that if you take part in is not going to mount up your sin and increase your condemnation, but it's being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we come together to celebrate communion, we remember that the sinless one, his body was broken, his blood was was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and we celebrate that and remember what it is that he was setting his face toward. He was setting his face to Jerusalem to go suffer, and when he institutes this meal, he shares it with us. And one of the things that blows me away, I mean, it's as he's doing it, it says that he gave thanks and broke it. Now, he knows that that symbolizes his body, and yet even as he's breaking the bread that symbolizes his body, it's like he's saying, I know I'm going to the cross, I know I'm going to suffer, and yet he's giving thanks even as he does it. Hmm. That blows my mind. It's like, you know, it's the equivalent of him hanging on the cross, giving thanks for the opportunity to redeem me. Like, that's his heart. It's so generous, so incredible. And so when we come to the Lord's table and we remember the heart of a God who gave thanks to be broken, who gave thanks to be poured out, like, you get an idea of how much he sought to please the heart of the Father, but to lay himself down for us. It was, it was a love that wasn't given begrudgingly. It was given with joy and thanksgiving. And that's hard to wrap my mind around. Mm. Hmm. And then immediately after he did that, he makes a statement that, taken on its, its face, it's a pretty simple thing. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he, he makes a statement that on the, on the surface of it, you say, well, Jesus is just not going to drink wine for a while. Mm-hmm. But there's probably more to it than that, I'm guessing. Yeah. This is one where I heard Pastor Matt talk about this. Um, it's, and, and what it was is there's a sense that Jesus in heaven right now is longing to return with us. He has given something up. He is abstaining from something that he's a longing to do because he's waiting to fulfill it and have the consummation of the second coming when all the saints come together and everything is made new and beautiful and we have the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's saying, I'm going to hold off. I'm not going to celebrate and drink the fruit of the vine until the day comes when the wedding supper of the Lamb and the second coming and I draw my bride to myself and we are together forever and ever and ever in peace and joy in heaven um, and the heavenly city. I'm going to withhold this from myself until that day comes. And so hmm. right now, Jesus is longing for the day when we're together. Hmm. You know, some people give up uh, wine for Lent for 40 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Jesus has given it up for more than 40 days. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. God is fasting right now for us. Wow. That's cool. So then it records, uh, and when they had sung a hymn after dinner, they went out to the Mount of Olives into a place called Gethsemane, and that's when all hell breaks loose. Hey, cliffhanger! It's not just for Netflix, apparently. This does bring us to the end of part two of A Guided Tour of Holy Week. Sam and I will record part three for next week, or three and four, or maybe... Never mind. I don't want to think about that much editing. We hope that you're enjoying this look back at the history of this most remarkable week as much as we did. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again in Gethsemane. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.